Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to episode 11 of the season 10 of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today is Sunday, November the 5th, and uh, we are welcoming as our guest here today, Peter Levenda. I don't have to introduce him. I am sure everybody here knows who he is, and I hope you're going to enjoy this really great episode. My name is Rudolf. I am your host, and it's my great pleasure to welcome all of you here on the Thoth Hermes podcast. Welcome all the returning listeners. Welcome to all of you who are here for the first time and hoping to have many returns of you coming here. Thanks to all the patrons who are back here and to continue to support this podcast. And as always, the adept the adept um, supporters are named here if they want there. There is one adept supporter that we have here, and that's Imbolc, the Western Magical School. And thanks a lot for your support. And you can also find a link to their website on the Thos Hermes website. Yes, talking about which, the Thos Hermes website, plenty of things to do there. First of all, you not only can link to uh, in bulk, as I just said, but you can also link to all the show notes. You have the links in the show notes to the homepages of our guests, to more information about what they do, about their books and everything. So there's really not only the episodes 157 by now that you can listen to there, but there's plenty of information on top. So do not miss out on that. Go on thoshermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com. And while you're there, why not do other things? For example, becoming a patron, like I just said, it's great to have those that we have, and I'm really grateful for that. But we need more of you and we need more support in order to be able to maintain the quality and the rhythm of this podcast. And I'm sure all of you would like that. So it would be really nice if some of you would go there today and click on the Patreon website and look for Thos Hermes or on the website, on my website, thoshermes.com. You have the Patreon button there. Easy. Just click on it. Choose the level of support starting at $1 per episode. Not much money. And if you want to give me a single donation, that's possible. We have a donation button also on the website. And you can buy me a coffee. Yes, very few of you bought me coffee so far. So do buy me a coffee. That's another way to support this podcast. You know the system. Thanks for that. And while you're on the website, please do send me also your 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 ideas, your criticisms, your thoughts, your 
anything you want to tell me either via a voicemail that you can find on the website or on the contact page. You have a direct contact page there. You also can send email info at authorvis.com as well as on Twitter and Facebook. There are, of course, the possibilities to send messages to us here. Great. And as always, I'm also very much looking forward to receiving music suggestions. If I mean music suggestions, I don't mean send me, hey, play the Beatles for me. That's nice, but can't possibly do that. But if you have your own music, music that you created, music that you wrote, that you that you interpret, that would be great to know about. I'm always really find it great that so many of those who are interested in occultism, the esoteric world, are also musicians themselves. It's not a surprise. We're going to talk about that also in the next episode but that's for later and in future episodes more and more about that. But today I am happy to have somebody who has sent me music, who provided the music for today's show. And that's great. Carl Jung is his name. I'll tell you more about him uh, a little later for before the second piece of music. We're going to play three pieces of music as always here. And let's go right away into the first of them. Uh, it's from a uh, recording that uh, the, the CD or the, the, the group of recordings that he made is called Lost in the Wood. And this first piece we're going to hear is called Dolphin Dance. His music is very much inspired by Eastern music. So you're going to hear that. And as I said, I will tell you more before the second piece of music. So do not miss out on that. And now go and listen to Dolphin Dance from Lost in the Wood by our listener, Carl Jung. Enjoy.
Dolphin Dance from Lost in the Woods by Carl Jung, our listener who sent us his music. Thank you, Carl. More about you a little later. Now I'm going to, no, I'm not going to introduce you to Peter Lavenda. He doesn't need introduction. He is such a well-known author and has written more than 20 books, uh, also focusing primarily on occult history. Of course, his probably best known book was also his first in 94, when he was one of the first to write about the Nazi involvement with the occult. Peter Levenda has since written a lot about, about the involvement of the occult in some strange uh, happenings in the world, uh, be it, for example, the Manson secret, be it also um, the Lovecraftian uh, implications, uh, etc. We're going to talk about all of that. I don't have to say all of that here now. Um, but Peter Lavender doesn't give that many interviews uh, on podcasts. Um, they're rather rare. And I'm very happy to have him here today. And I want to thank Marco Visconti also for that, because it was after the interview I did with him a few weeks ago that uh, he said he would mention this interview to Peter and asked, do you think he would come on the show? And well, he spoke to Peter Lavenda and here he is. Thank you, Marco, for that. And thanks, especially Peter Lavenda, for being with us here today. Um, we have quite a long interview here today, especially the second part is rather longish. So I will not keep you much longer here in this intro. Just let's go and meet Peter and listen to a really highly interesting talk um, with a man who is sometimes controversial, but who has extremely interesting things to say. Here comes the interview. I have the enormous pleasure and honor today to have somebody here in front of the microphone of the Thoughts Harmony podcast, who I think many of our listeners will be very happy to have with us here today, Peter Levenda, um, a famous man in the world of occultism for various reasons. And I um, thank you for being with us here, Peter. It's great to have you. It's my pleasure. You're very kind. Thank you very much. Of course. No, um, it, it's true. So, uh, Peter, um, I think what I normally do in the podcast, and you know that, um, is to talk about the person we speak to before we delve into occultism, esotericism, your work, your your books, etc. Um, of course, many of your books, most of your books have a background in in the larger sense of occultism, I would say. Um this leads me to the suspicion that occultism, esotericism is something that has already triggered you to a certain extent or been part of your life to a certain extent from early stage on. Is that is that the case? I would say yes, uh, it is the case. I first became interested in this type of material when I was still a teenager, basically. Um, I don't know exactly what might have triggered it. Um, I know that I saw... I think Marco had a similar background. Marco Visconti, he talked about comic books. Uh, I mm -hmm. think in my case, it was some obscure comic that I saw when I was about 
12 or 13 years old, uh, which involved a man standing in a, in a, in a circle uh, performing some kind of ritual to talk to spirits or something. And that kind of triggered something. Um, I don't know what it was. It was a fascination with the whole concept. I mean, I was brought up as a Roman Catholic uh, during the Cold War. Uh, it was a time when communism and devil worshippers were considered virtually the same, identical. And uh, so you had this kind of very heavy presence of uh, the possibility of mutual assured destruction, uh, we had the air rain sirens, we had the, the air raid drills and all of this. And also we had the Catholic Church. And I, I went to Mass every day because I was in Catholic school. My parents sent me to, to study with nuns, uh, which had a, a negative effect on me, actually, where religion was concerned. Uh, but somehow I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater, as we say, although I had a very strong disinclination where... The Catholic Church was concerned, as, at least as far as its organization and, and the nuns and all the rest of it, there was an attraction towards the mystical side of, of religion. And I right. think that, 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 that remained. And then we lived briefly uh, on top of a remote mountain in New Hampshire in the middle of nowhere in 1963 that I think to this day was haunted or had something weird about it. I remember taking a walk in the woods and then uh, arriving at a clearing. And in this clearing, all sound, all natural sound, everything stopped. I was in as if I was in a large room, but I was outdoors, the sun was shining, but there were no birds, there were no animals, there were no insect sounds. If, if you live in that part of the world, there's always noise, there's always sound, there's insects, there's cicadas, there's birds, there's whatever. It was dead quiet. I felt the, the the existence of a presence, and it was terrifying. And I think it was the old uh, where the word panic comes from, the idea of of a haunting by Pan, the presence of Pan. There was some kind of otherworldly kind of a, of a sensation, and it freaked me out completely. And uh, shortly thereafter, of course, November of that year was the Kennedy assassination. We were still on top of this mountain, and it was still very strange. And uh, eventually got back to New York City, where I'm from. And um, I began conducting seances in our uh, apartment in, uh, in the Bronx on Revere Avenue in the Bronx, uh, the second, second floor apartment. And we had uh, this enormous heavy oak table that we had purchased at a, uh, an antique store or, or some sort of garage sale in, in New Hampshire, a very large, very heavy uh, table. And during the seance, there was this paranormal activity taking place. So the table would rise up uh, and float in mid space before the coming crashing down. And that sort of thing, um, I think drove me over the edge where this is concerned because I'm still going to high school and I'm still, I'm taking science classes. And I know that my science teachers would tell me that what I had experienced was not possible, that it didn't happen, that I must've been imagining it, but I know what was going on. It was, it's indelibly etched in my mind, those those initial sessions. So I think that combination of all of that, and then I started reading books on uh, occultism. I read uh, Magic and Theory and Practice by, by Aleister Crowley, which was right. the wrong book to start with. <laughs> but it, uh, it did sort of introduce me to a way of looking at this subject that seemed kind of common sense, uh, kind of refreshing, because I had been looking at 
the Arthur Waite book of ceremonial magic, which is very negative towards the whole idea of ritualism mm-hmm. and ritual magic. And uh, it's also bits and pieces of grimoires and, and that sort of thing. And I couldn't make much sense of it, although I was still drawn to it. Crowley kind of said, this is a common sense approach we're going to take. I didn't understand 90% of what he was talking about. I had no idea what the Golden Dawn was, any of that stuff, all the weird allusions that he made, references. Mm -hmm. But it was exhilarating to read. And that side by side with a copy of the Tao Te Ching sort of set me off on, on a path that I've never really gotten away from. I've had to lead a normal life. I've been involved in uh, in business, in the business world, I've, I've traveled extensively, lived overseas, uh, did a lot of international trade, did a lot of business in China, uh, that sort of thing. But um, this has always been there. It's always been on the side. I've always been involved in it one way or another. And I consider it a technology. From my perspective, it is a spiritual technology. It is not a matter of dogma. For me, it's not a matter of of a theology of any kind. This is a, a technology which, if done correctly, yields specific results and can lead you to deeper understanding. So for me, that was my long-winded introduction to it. I eventually did get a degree, a master's degree in religious studies mm-hmm. uh, when I was in my 50s, um, much late in life, but I, I found that to be very valuable uh, as a tool uh, for helping me understand uh, various things that I had already experienced and also for interpreting uh, other people's material on this. I found all of that fascinating, all of that very, very useful. So uh, by way of background, that's that, that's a good introduction, I think. Well, that, that, that's great. I have two questions rise for, uh, from that for me. Um, you as an American, do you have an explanation why this new wave of uh, esotericism, occultism has moved so much across the ocean. I mean, in, it all originated in Europe somehow, you know, with alchemy and, and the whole Renaissance movement and all of that. And even the first revival, the Golden Dawn and, and, uh, and all of this, and even Madame Blavatsky, everything came kind of out of Europe. And now suddenly even this podcast, which is based in Europe, 85% about of my audience are North American because the, the, the movement is so much more rooted there nowadays than, than over here. Do you have an explanation why this is the case? Why occultism is so much more present in the minds of the North Americans than other parts of the world? It's a fascinating uh, question, actually. Um, let me see if I can answer it uh, with the seriousness it deserves. I think, if you remember, there was a French uh, tourist who came to the United States in the 18th century, Alexis de Tocqueville, mm-hmm. and he wrote about America. And he said, you know, he wrote in that book, religious insanity is very common in the United States. <laughs> and that to me has been a guidestone <laughs> for everything. It's a kind of place where this can take root. We had, of course, the famous Salem witchcraft trials, which were nothing compared to the witchcraft trials in Europe, but still they had an effect. And I think that in general, the Americas are, and I've written about this in a, in a series of volumes called Sinister Forces. I think that mm. North America in particular, but I think the same is true of Central and South America. America is a haunted house. Uh, we moved into a territory that had civilization here. It had elaborate structures that rivaled the pyramids in size and antiquity. We've had 
you know, uh, populations that lived here that practice all sorts of religions for which we have no understanding at all. We, we don't even know what was going on. We built cities on top of burial mounds uh, and, and other sorts of architectural wonders that we never gave a second thought to. You know, we only started mapping them around the 19th century or so. We started to become interested in what are all these weird things that we're, you know, we're building our prisons on top of and and our <laughs> cities and towns. I mean, we we gradually become aware that we're living on in, in, a, in a territory that was that we took over as Europeans. Mm-hmm. We displaced populations. We didn't even consider what kind of populations they were, what languages they spoke, what religions they practiced. The um, Cotton Mather, one of our first uh, uh, Protestant um, uh, clerics who came to North America and was very much involved with the Salem witchcraft trials and, and other things, he wrote about the Native American population and basically saying that since they were not mentioned in the Bible, they must be demons. They're not human. In other words, they're, they're somehow spiritual forces. So we have this, this weird background here, which may not be unique. I mean, Europe probably has something quite similar. You have cave paintings and you have you know, prehistoric settlements and all of that. We have the same, but we were relatively new coming to this part of the, part of the world. And the people were still here. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. you know, our cave painters were still around. You know, they were still building things. They were still conducting uh, their religious ceremonies, their political organizations. So um, Tichuba, who was the, the slave uh, in Salem, who started the Salem witchcraft uh, hysteria, was actually uh, racially was an Arawak Indian, probably from Guyana. Um, which then, you know, I, I write about in Sinister Forces that Salem, you know, she was in 1692, she was um, uh, uh, considered to be the, the instigator of the Salem right. witchcraft. Theory. She actually survived it. She was sent to prison. She was not uh, hanged the way the other witches were. She did escape. Uh, and she was let out after the end of, of a period of time in prison and sort of disappeared into the framework. But Guyana then became for us uh, Jonestown. Right. Uh, a horrible, hideous massacre of people in her native land. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I see connections here and I see, you know, um, uh, religious and, and maybe occult uh, synchronicities connecting uh, what's going on in North America with with an older form of religion that took place here in order civil, older civilization. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s, when Sybil Leake from England came and visited the United States, uh, she brought sort of with her uh, a lot of these ideas. Raymond Buckland, who started uh, the Gardnerian movement in the United States, uh, came as well. I met him back in the day. Ah, uh, right. He appeared on television in the 60s, blew my mind. I'm watching television. There's all these witches on television. I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> what happened? I thought it was in you know these old books that I was buying. And here was Sybil Leake and Raymond Buckland was in the audience. There was a, it was a talk show. He showed up. I went in and sought him out, actually. Um, so it was it was always in the air, but it was it was always an import from from Europe. Yeah. Lorotsky, though, you know, she formed the Theosophical Society in New York City in, yes, in 1875. Yes. So, yeah. you know, there is there is a connection here. It is kind of strong. And I think mostly with the UK. But um, there's also a large French input as well. Uh, that I've been able to trace um, 
there's also, of course, German and other continental influences here in this country. We have a an expatriate population. I mean, most of our people were expatriates from Europe, and they brought some of their reliefs with them. The Rosicrucians in Pennsylvania. Uh, we had the Pennsylvania Dutch, so-called, uh, bringing a lot of Rosicrucian ideas. I wrote about that in Sinister Forces as well. So it was like this virgin territory, uh, and we could create any I, any concept we wanted, any any cult, any religion, any practice could be. This was this was fertile ground for that. Not realizing that we are doing this on the site of other ancient religious structures and ancient practices. It's fascinating. Right. I think. right. And, and of course, many of those Europeans that who left Europe did it for spiritual, not religious only, but spiritual reasons uh, of different kinds. And maybe that was a special people also who moved out there. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and also, I think I don't know what you say to that. And that's part of another very important thread of your books. I must say it's not only one book that you wrote about that. I believe that um, his, the, the political uh, situation in Europe in mid, the mid 20th century, the Nazism, the fascism, but also, of course, in the, the, the Bolshevism, um, they, of course, they created a kind of bad feeling towards occultism once they were over, once their periods were over. And sure. it was maybe subconscious, but you didn't touch those things. That's the feeling I get over here in Europe. Do you do you think there is some truth behind that? Well, certainly right after the war, um, there was a tremendous pushback against occultism mm. uh, spearheaded by people like Theodore Adorno, who believed yeah. that there was such a thing as a fascism scale and that occultism was one step towards fascism. Um, and I can understand that. I mean, I see it happening today as well. There's this tremendous idea that occultism somehow is fertile ground for a very right wing and very sort of pro-fascist or proto-fascist kind of, of thinking, which disturbs me a lot because I'm, I'm by nature a leftist, I suppose, yeah. by, by at least by, by American standards, if not European. Um, so, you know, for me to equate fascism and occultism is a, is a big mistake and misunderstands both in my estimation. But that's probably a topic that's for another for another uh, talk. Yeah, but, but uh, if you could maybe expand a little bit on that, because I think it's an important topic nowadays. Uh, if you if you may, I mean, sure. it would be nice Certainly. to hear you in that a bit. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, part of the problem, I think, to me, is the reliance on um, traditionalism, and I think traditionalism bears within it the seeds of fascism. If it's if this is the way we go, we we seem to understand that the ancient peoples understood better um, all of these spiritual things than modern people do today. And I think that's a very deep mistake. Um, I think if the ancient people did really understand it better, what happened? <laughs> you know, why are we in this state right now? I don't think they really did have a handle on spirituality the way the, the, the traditionalists like to think. René Guénon, uh, mm -hmm. Julius Evola, people like that who who kept looking towards the back, kept looking towards the past history and say, we have to go back to the golden age in Elo Tempera. You know, I don't believe there was an Elo Tempera. I don't believe yeah. there was a golden age. I think that's, that's uh, hyperbole. I, I don't think it really existed. I think we've always been as humans struggling towards the light in this case, struggling yeah. towards this understanding. I don't think there was ever a point where we had it nailed down and somehow lost it. Because if we did, then it really wasn't worth holding on to whatever we had back in those days. So I think the, the idea of the traditionalist perspective on spirituality is, to me, the problem. I think we have to look forward and not backward. Um, I, that sounds maybe 
like uh, uh, pablum, uh, but uh, to me, it's very real. I think forward looking is 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 important. I think we can make some sense of it. I think in the twentieth century, for me, I think a, a central core movement was the surrealist movement. Right, and I think that surrealism had within it the seeds of a tremendous reawakening, spiritually, politically, in terms of occultism. Uh, all of that was there, and philosophy especially. And who was the biggest enemy of surrealism was the Nazis and the yeah. fascists. Yeah. They, they, they tried to kill all of the surrealist painters. If it wasn't for uh, this, this school teacher from Connecticut who managed to, to have set up a, a chain of, of escape routes for them, we would have lost most of our surrealist painters in the camps. And I think that's what we have to do. We have to stop there and say, okay, what was it about the surrealist movement, about Andre Breton, and about all of the other surrealists, Max Ernst and everyone else around there, Duchamp, all of these people that was such a threat to, to fascism, to the kind of occultism represented by, by the Third Reich, by, uh, by Himmler, at least, and the SS. What, right. was, what, what was the tension between them? And I think if we go back to that, we will find out what the key was, why fascism was considered uh, the, the, the handmaiden of occultism and why that perception is absolutely wrong in my estimation. Right. Well, thank you. I think it's an important thing to to state from somebody who knows so much about that as you do. And thank you for that. And um, the other question that arose uh, when you said where you were coming from in the beginning, you called occultism a technology. Now, uh, the person's book who you wrote, uh, read first, uh, Crowley, he always said it's an art and a science, right? Uh, right. At the same time. Yeah. Um, how does that relate? How would you say it is an extension of art and science? And in what sense is a technology in the sense of uh, occultism, different from the art and the science, as Crowley puts it. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, how much time do you have? <laughs> as much as you want. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we can, with profit, um, no pun intended, uh, with profit, we can go back and look at, um, for instance, French philosophy in the late 20th century, we can look at Postmodernism. We can look at post-structuralism. We can look at Foucault uh, as an example. We can understand the relationship of the body to spirituality. That the body is really the nexus of this operation. We think of science. We think of test tubes and laboratories, but there's a science of the human body. And I think that the body is our vehicle for understanding, not just the brain, but the entire person. Um, We, we remember Foucault wrote a great deal about how society, uh, how systems are used to punish, to control, to mark uh, the human body. It's, it's all about the, the body as the, the site of power, of exertion of power of the state, for instance. Mm -hmm. I think in magic and occultism, it's the body used, again, uh, proactively by the individual uh, to regain autonomy, to take it away from the state without getting too political and too French about this. But the idea is to try to wrest control away. I think that the spiritual technology, Crowley was correct. It's, it's a magic. Magic is, is a, a science. Our, our, our method is science. Our aim is religion, as he said. Mm -hmm. exactly. And that might have gone well with, uh, with Nietzsche, uh, with, with, uh, with Foucault, with Kafka to a certain extent. I think they might have understood where Crowley was coming from. But in my case and my project, you might say, of the last, uh, oh, 
20 years or so, I suppose, in my writing, much of which has not been published, is, is, is a project of relocating that technology in the body and in its, its, uh, its systems for trying to, to gain this kind of liberation of the spirit through understanding the body. The body is kind of in the way. In terms of many religions, we have to control the body, deprive the body. Uh, we have to fast. Uh, we have to be celibate or we have to uh, worry about what food we eat, what we don't eat, et cetera, et cetera. It's a way of controlling bodily systems. But I think we haven't gone far enough yet. I think we need to go a bit further to understand how those systems work, how they interrelate, and how we can use that as a means for under for understanding greater spiritual liberation. That the magical technologies, and I always go back to ceremonial magic, the, the old European hermeticism, is that the, the rituals of ceremonial magic are means of controlling the, the sensory apparatus of the body, to control it and to manipulate it and then to kind of get it out of the way. And I think we have to go back to understanding magic as that kind of technology. Right. Does that mean, is, do I get you right, is that in order also to create the correct relationship between the, the, the material, the body, and the, and the spiritual side. Is, is that, is that the, the, final, uh, the final aim of that control of the body you're talking about? I think it's to understand the degree to which the spirit is a function of and present in the material body, the physical right. body. Right. You know, I don't see, I don't see a, a strict demarcation between the two. Mm -hmm. um, is consciousness... Um, an emergent form of, you know, the human body, as David Chalmers would say. Right. Uh, for me, the body is an emergent form of consciousness. And that's maybe too glib. Uh, it's not as simple as that, of course. But I think that I think that's where we should really focus our attention and understand that there's a very deep spiritual connection there. If we can understand that, we can understand about illness, about death, about fear, about hope, about all the rest of it, if we can understand the relationship between spirit and the physical body. Right. So philosophically, you are rather an idealist, if I get you right. People have accused me of that, yes. <laughs> Do you feel accused by that? <laughs> well, it just seems like one of those things, you know, idealism is is probably no, sure. a dirty word in your face. But, yeah. it, it is, it is, and it is by, by already... In itself, an, an ideal which which will never which we can never attain anyway. <laughs> right. um, which, in a way, I maybe maybe the bridge is a bit strange, but it, in a way brings me to your Lovecraftian side. Now, I must say, I'm personally not as much a specialist in Lovecraft as as I would like to be for that interview. I'm I more come from the ceremonial magic hermetic uh, side and masonry, etc. But still, of course, I I have some knowledge of it, and I have read the first of your three huge novels uh, on that that you that you oh, wrote. You. Uh, no, of course. And 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 it's a great book. And um, as some people have said, I mean, I'm just citing a more intelligent Da Vinci code. <laughs> Somebody said on the on the back of that book. Um, but I, I'd rather cite something else that's also on that back of the book uh, by Francis Bacon. It says, truth is so hard to tell. It sometimes needs fiction to make it plausible. That's the citation you give there. Right. And um, it, what truth are you trying or do you want? No, you're not only trying, you do it. But do you want to tell your readers by using the means of Lovecraft and horror and 
that kind of fiction to what do you want to bring across? What truth is it that you want to talk us about? Can you can you frame that? Well, we can go back to a quotation from Aleister Crowley that uh, magic is the art and science of causing change right. to occur. And the the art aspect is literature. The art aspect is Lovecraft stories. They are attempts to say what we instinctively know, but which we cannot scientifically prove at this point. Sometimes it's better to frame these deep questions in in our artistic sense. As we go back again to surrealism, the surrealists were depicting something real. It was called surreal, but it was mm -hmm. real. Mm. Um, but it was real, but it was not apprehensible using our metrics our scientific metrics, our scientific means of measurement, our, our machines, yet. We're not able to understand, measure these things, but we know they're real. Um, I became upset, as I usually am with the Catholic Church, when I realized that they were withholding, they were trying to block the release of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. And I, I said to myself, this is insane. We are only on this planet for a short time. If there is a truth buried in those scrolls, we need to know it now. Mm. We should not be living as, for instance, as Catholics, if we're Catholics, and then dying as Catholics without knowing what's in the scrolls. The church should not block access to them. Now, were the Dead Sea Scrolls, what were they? They were not scientific treatises, right? They were religious texts. But a religious text is a bit like a novel. It's a bit like a creative expression as opposed to a scientific one, at, at least. We have a very hard time positioning religion in terms of is it real or is it false? Is it a fantasy or is it a reality? Which is pretty much how we handle cinema, we handle literature, we handle art. It's in that area. And it was the, the church that was really a major uh, uh, benefactor of, of the arts during the Renaissance, for instance. So we know that there's this connection between religion and, and the arts. And I think that that's part of what my fascination is with all of this as well. I think that the, the truths that we really need to hear are going to come to us from texts like, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls, re trying to understand what they were thinking at the same time that the biblical texts were being written, at least the New Testament texts and the Gnostic texts. Uh, I, I feel that they were on onto something. I feel the Gnostics understood something, and they were describing it not in scientific terms. They could not. There was no science as we understand it today. So they're, re they're reporting it the best way they can. And I think that impulse in artists and musicians and in writers is still there. And I think they are talking about the truth, and we need both. You know, I became involved with Tom DeLonge and the, and the uh, UFO phenomenon. Yes. Yes. And so he decided quite brilliantly, in my estimation, to have one writer – H.J. Uh, Hartley, write a series of three novels, and to have the other writer, myself, write a series of three nonfiction books all about the same material. And why? It was because whatever we could not really explain in the scientific books, in the nonfiction, would be explained in the fiction in a way that was you were able to understand it instinctively or emotionally without necessarily putting together the nuts and bolts and doing the, the equations, right, and doing the engineering. You would, you would apprehend something as truth, and then you would have the nonfiction books to sort of support it, to buttress it, and, and, and back it up. This, to me, was a unique approach to a very, very heavy 
and very difficult subject. And I think that's why um, I, I look at uh, magic as this place that occupies that middle ground between the two, between science and religion. Right. And do you think it would be wrong to say that even, I wouldn't only say the Bible, even all kinds of religious texts of different traditions um, are doing exactly the same, telling us the truth through fiction? Or would that go too far? No, I think I think that is it. I mean, what do you call the first book of Genesis? I mean, the first chapter of Genesis, the first few chapters of Genesis, but a remarkable novel. I mean, it's full of yeah. symbolism. It's full of things that could not possibly occur in our waking world. And yet they do carry with them such a an, a seed of, of something ineffable, something that we know somehow happened somehow like that, right? And it was a, a Middle Eastern approach to it, a Canaanite and eventually a, a, an Israelite and, and, and a Judaic approach to a series of stories that were common at that time, but which have tremendous resonance with stories from other cultures and other 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 times and other places. It is a, the, the impulse was the same. There were no novels as we know them in those days. Of course, there was no cinema, but there was poetry and their and poetry and theater and religion were all the same thing really up until about the middle ages true so these were in you could not separate these things now we've separated them now because we're very scientific at least we think we are so we've separated this all out and said well this is fiction and this is nonfiction. Uh, robin williams the famous comedian used to say reality what a concept um, for me, it's, it's, it's fiction. What a concept, right? It's, and the problem with that, there's a negative side. And the negative side is the conspiracy theories that we're awash now in, in the United States because everybody's creating their own stories, which is fine, except now they have guns. <laughs> you know, it's not just a question yeah, of yeah. me creating my own story. Now I have a gun. I'm going to use that gun to make it real. And that, to me, is where we've jumped off the, the ledge a little bit. We've got to pull ourselves back from the brink. And that's probably for another another session. But mm -hmm. it's uh, something that, that concerns me a great deal because I write about conspiracies uh, and sinister forces. And I get very upset with people who think that they've Googled something and now they've done research like I have over the 20, 30 years of researching sinister forces was a lot more rigorous than that and based on documents and based on interviews and trying to piece together what happened in various places and now you can listen to somebody rant on youtube and you know that's enough suddenly that's doing your research no it's not yeah. <laughs> this is not right. this is the beginning of doing your research you know but it's not the end so we're in that place where fiction now is becoming so powerful that it's overwhelming every other concept Before we now go any further with Peter Lavenda, this is the moment to take a little break and to listen to some music as always in this show. And as you heard earlier, our music here today is by our listener, Carl Jung. And well, Carl, he sent me his, uh, his, his music uh, in order to, to, to be played here. He is a... I hope I pronounced that correctly, a shakuhashi player with a wide range of experience playing solo and in traditional Japanese classical and folk ensembles, but also well, as well playing jazz and modern Western music. And 
uh, I tried to give to give you here a little an overview of those different types of music he does. He does solo performances. He's accompaniment for readings, etc. And uh, I really like his music. He also tells me in what he sent me that he. Uh, plays the Japanese bamboo flute is shakuhashi as I said I hope I pronounced that correctly in part because of its connection to the Zen tradition and despite these tedious arguments about whether this instrument is really a spiritual tool or a musical instruments and he says one of his teachers said with fiend innocence do you have to be a bad musician to be spiritual <laughs> no, you certainly don't have to be that. And Carl is really proving that he he's a great musician. He plays the, those things really, really well. Um, and I'm glad that he sent this to me and that we all can be, be having the advantage to listen to that. I believe he's from the San Francisco area, at least that's what I get from his website. And his website is, of course, going to be linked to the show notes of this of this show here today. So do not miss out on that and go and listen to more of his music also on Substack, etc. Um, not on Substack, sorry, on SoundCloud uh, and Bandcamp. I will link it there in order not to confuse, you know, Bandcamp it is in his case. Right. So what's up now? Which piece are we going to hear? Again, a piece from that recording Lost in the Woods. And this second piece we hear now is called Ghosts. Well, quite a good title for what we are talking here about today. Ghosts, after which we return to the second part of the interview, another 45-ish minutes with Peter Levenda. So as I said, a rather long interview here today, and I'm happy about that. And at the end of the second part of the interview, we will hear the, the really Japanese flute music interpreted by Carl Jung from his recording called Bamboo. The piece that we hear is called Jingetsu. Uh, Jingetsu from Bamboo by Carl Jung will be the third choice of music here. And after which, of course, I will tell you what will be next week's program and who will be my guest next week. So once again, it's now Ghosts from Lost in the Wood by Carl Jung, followed by the second part of the interview. And then Jingetsu from the recording called Bamboo, again by our listener Carl Jung. Enjoy.
Now, I don't know if the comparison is just what I what I am doing now, but um, we were speaking earlier about the problem for occultism in Europe, partly because of the fascist background, right? Uh, we just said that. Um, now you just mentioned the conspiracy theory problem um, and people like you and I, I know all your three books uh, that you just mentioned. I think it's three, right? Uh, yes, I think it's three. Um, yes. And um, I, I love what I read in there. I, I'm like you. I'm an upset Catholic. I'm no more Catholic for, for ages. I, I was also brought up in the Cold War, maybe a few, but only a few years later than you. So we have kind of the same background. And yeah. I also feel um, upset that when we speak about what people call conspiracies or the things, the themes that you bring up in your book, Secret Tales, uh, Sinister Tales, um, are washed away by some as being um, right wing, basically. I mean, that's that, that's what they say, or conspiracy theories as a bad word, you know. Mm-hmm. And how do you? I mean, this is not exactly the, the the center of the subject of this of this podcast here, but I think it's important to to name things. Is that the same phenomenon in a different way or what has happened here? Why is it so hard to bring up difficult truths in a a time when we, when we would be so, when it would be so necessary to speak out the truth? Hmm. Yes, that's a very uh, uh, weighty question. It is very necessary to speak the truth and we have so few tools at our disposal to, um, to find out what that truth is, it seems. Um, I mean, the truth is there. Uh, as Fox Mulder famously said, the truth is out there. And it is out there. I mean, it does exist. Mm-hmm. We can find it. It's just that we now have understood that what we feel must be the truth is the truth. And that's the problem. We do not want to challenge ourselves and our understanding, our preconceived ideas about truth. We want the truth that we find to support uh, our own biases, our own um, our own grievances. We want that. We, we don't really want the truth. We just want an explanation. And we want an enemy to identify. And we want to solve whatever problems we have by saying, okay, our life is not in our control. It's in someone else's control. We have to take the control back. That is true to an extent. But it's, it has to start within the individual person. To try to solve our psychological or spiritual problem politically, um, we've tried that for thousands of years, and it has never actually worked. We've had moments of respite. We've had moments where we thought everything was going to be fine. I have an example. Um, for instance, China. I've done a lot of work in China. I've done a lot of business there in my business career. I was back there since the 1980s. So I was one of the earliest people to be successful in business in China, and one of the earliest Americans, I should say. Um, And I had a lot of friends uh, in China, and they told me about the early days of the revolution. And the revolution took place, and the revolution was necessary, because until the Chinese revolution, the Chinese people were basically enslaved in their own country. Right. Uh, there was a very decadent rulership on top. There were a lot of foreigners really controlling most of what was happening in China, the economic life in China and all of that. 
the revolution was necessary. And when the revolution happened, when it was successful, when Mao took over the country in the late 1940s, there was this honeymoon period. And they told me about this, people who lived through it. And they said, we didn't lock our doors. All property was held in common. Nobody wanted for anything. Nobody feared anything. And that lasted about five years, right? Mm -hmm. Then it started to go completely downhill. There were exterior enemies. There was, you know, the U.S. was in North, was in Korea. There was the Korean War that was being fought. Then there was Vietnam and there was Laos and Cambodia. All of these things were happening. China was feeling encircled and draconian measures were taken to defend the country against the foreigners. And they had reason to fear the foreigners. And that experience so, with that from, from the Brits and the Americans from earlier days in, in, exactly. the, in, in the Boxer Wars and the, in the Opium Wars, et cetera. Yeah. Et cetera. Of course, it goes, back, it goes back hundreds of years. Right. So they had reason for all of this and they had the best of intentions and they thought that communism was going to be the answer or at least communism, as they said, Marxism, Leninism with Chinese characteristics. Right. So that's what they wanted to do. And, they, and Mao was going to be the savior. He was the saint. He was going to lead them to the promised land. And obviously that didn't happen. And so I wrote about the good Mao and the bad Mao, you know, mm -hmm. and the good Mao was the father of his country. And the bad Mao was basically the devil of his country. You know, so he, he, he had both of those. Why? Because he was a human being. And because yeah. the Chinese were human beings, because we had not solved the essential problems of being human beings. And we haven't solved them in the United States at this point. And we're looking to solve it again politically through the barrel of a gun, which is what Mao told us, right? All power comes from the barrel of a gun. Yeah. And now we're, we're, we're embracing that idea here without remembering where that came from and what happened because of that, you know? So we are in a situation where we have so much, so many options. We have so many streaming services. We can watch any kind of movie we want to watch, any kind of television show. And that extends to politics as well. Now it's a question of changing the dial. We don't like this news station. We change it for this news station. Mm -hmm. The truth changes. It, it morphs from one place to another. Oh, we like this news better. What does that mean? Right? <laughs> News has always been a problem. It was a problem during the 60s, during Vietnam, obviously, until famously Walter Cronkite on the air said, what is going on here? I thought we were winning this thing, meaning Vietnam, and began to openly criticize the information he was getting from the government. That was a brilliant moment that I remember because I saw it happen. I saw it as mm -hmm. it took place after the Tet Offensive and in, in January of 68, and it was like, we are questioning now. We have the ability to question. We have the ability to hold feet to the fire, to get at the truth, except now we're not doing that anymore. Now we're just picking the truth that we like. And that is the same as a lot of forms of occultism. I don't want to practice. I don't want to do the pranayama. I don't want to study the asanas. I don't want to get the samadhi. I, don't, I want to do something fast and easy. I want to watch a TikTok video and feel that I've gained enlightenment that way. It just makes me feel better. And that's what it's all about. Right. And we're in that mode in this country. And that's, that's the problem. I think Marco, I talked a little bit about that idea of, you know, the, the fast and easy way to attain spiritual enlightenment right. and the kind of right. the marketing of it that's been going on. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's the same for politics. It's the same for economics. It's all of that is the same. No one wants to hear the truth really as uh, 
Jack Nicholson uh, told us very famously, you can't handle the truth. Well, we can handle it. We're trying to handle it, but you know, we've got to work at it a little bit more. Thank you for that. And uh, I sometimes have the impression it's also partly related to not accepting that we have to find a solution in ourselves, not outside, in ourselves, because in the human being, there's always good and evil, as you just said. And if we only try to, to, if we try to block away the negative side of everything of ourselves to start with, but also right. of the information we get and everything that scares us or whatever, if you try to block that out, um, that gives us maybe five seconds of relief, but it will not solve the problem and it will make it bigger. And that very much brings us to the hermetic, the hermetic uh, situation as I sure. try to, to live it. So, and uh, well, Freemasonry. Yes, yes. Freemasonry, the initiations of Freemasonry are at the point of a sword. You're tied up, you're blindfolded. I mean, the idea that you must go through that period and go through it, not stop Mm -hmm. there, not back away from it, not walk away in fear, but go right through it to figure out what is in yourself that needs to be changed. Right. right. So, yes, I agree. Sorry to interrupt you. but yeah. No, no, not at all. It's a good point because I do not like this headline that Freemasonry in North America is at the moment using so much, making good men better. Um, uh-huh. no, uh, no, Freemasonry does not make you have to make it yourself right. and not, yeah. not something from the outside is going to make that, right? Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. It sounds a little bit too much like make America great again, right? Uh, yes, ab- yes, absolutely. Hadn't thought of that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, well, let, let's go to the uh, a little bit to the paranormal things um, because you mentioned that very early in this interview that you had those personal experiences. I'm not talking about the panic. I liked that remembrance of pan as being the origin of the word of panic. Absolutely true. But um, you you mentioned the table, the oak table that, that uh, levitated and maybe other experiences that you had. And in many of your writings or nonfiction writings also, you relate to paranormal situations and what has, what have authorities made with them, what they have created through the occult and through also paranormal capacities, uh, experiences, etc. Um, what do you think is so fascinating in that, what what happens to out there? If we can say that in five minutes, but what what is happening out there that makes it so interesting for powers to use those um, capacities, those faculties? I think that we we were frightened into it. Um, after the end of World War II, I think that uh, World War II was a watershed moment for the United States this way. I think that uh, with the rise of, of uh, very powerful communist forces in, in, in Russia and in China and in Korea, and there was this idea that there was a spiritual, there was a spiritual war taking place, that it was not just a, uh, a war of politics. As a Catholic at that time, we were brought up on the idea of godless communism. Yeah. and the persecution of religion, the persecution of the churches. So there was already a spiritual component in the political uh, situation. 
that the the churches were being destroyed in in these countries, um, religious people were being uh, persecuted, murdered, uh, uh, put in prison, uh, in all of the the the, the communist so called communist countries. So there was this idea that there was a war between our way of life, quote unquote, and um, theirs, and theirs was evil and it was satanic, and uh, so you already had this idea built in, and then you had the idea of brainwashing. Uh, so then the brainwashing situation made things even worse. So we had the the, the 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 weird phenomenon of the CIA in 1950 creating the Operation Bluebird. They were going to investigate um, uh, brainwashing and mind control. Uh, really strange stuff. And that bordered on, on religion. It bordered on the paranormal. So the, the idea that somehow these people living in those countries, because they had attacked the churches, and they had attacked spirituality, they found something. They found some technique, some mysterious Asian, you know, uh, clouding of men's minds uh, technique, and that uh, we had to find a way to defend ourselves against it. And the only way to do that was the the sort of drastic approach of ripping apart the human mind to see what was in there and what made it work. And uh, it involved hypnosis. It involved drugs. It involved even ritual. It involved all of that. How do we get in and, and, and control the, the brain? And it was for political reasons. And it was a self-defense, a national defense, national security program to defend the country against what? You know, against ghosts, right? <laughs> against demons, against, you know, uh, some strange mental, you know, uh, sort of 1920s, 1930s radio, you know, um, uh, drama kind of thing. I mean, the, the shadow, I, right? The sure you remember the Astral Man, the Astral Man by Louise Kaiser, right? To remember that book, yes. I'm sure that that was right. very clearly a, a, yeah. an exp expression of that. Yeah. yeah. And then by 1960, you had the morning of the magicians, right? Yes. And you right. had Paul and Berger saying, yes, the Nazis were doing this. Yeah. People were doing all this occult stuff and yeah. using it for political ends. So it was there. It was in the air. It was part of, um, it was just part of everything. And People didn't know this. When I wrote Sinister Forces, most people were not aware of maybe nine-tenths of what was in those books. Now they are aware of it. They're just not aware of context anymore. So it's just bits and pieces that, they, that they're aware of, that they've heard here, they've heard there. And now I have people coming up to me saying, did you know this? And I'm like, yeah, I wrote about it like 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, No, but really, do you know that this? Yeah, I know about that. But you've got it wrong. It's not the way you're explaining it. It happened a different way. Then they get very irritated and very angry. And I say, just look at it. I have the documents. I tell you exactly where to go to find you know, the information. But they don't want to know it now. Now they have a piece. And that piece describes it all. That piece says everything to them, and they they ride that hobby horse into the into the sunset, you know, um, and that's that's the problem. We want to believe these things. Our religions have failed us. The Catholic Church has now become a bugaboo in in the United States. It's become a pariah because of the abuse, the sexual abuse scandals, mm -hmm. the child abuse scandals, and all the rest of it. Not enough because of politics. Not enough because of what was done in South America, as an example or the Catholic martyrs to political regimes down there, uh, not because of liberation theology. The Catholic Church is held up as a pride because of the, the sexual abuse scandals, uh, which was not when I was a kid. When I was a kid, you saw a man with a, with a collar. Uh, they, they were practically God's emissary on earth. Hmm. Now it's not quite that way any longer, which is fine. But my position is let's talk about all of it. 
Let's talk about why that exists. Why is there a, a sexual abuse scandal, for instance, in the church? What's the politics behind it? What's the what are, what are the what's the strategy, the political strategy that exists there? Why is that happening? You know, go deeper than that. Don't just say that you know the, the priests are all perverts or something. Go deeper. Go 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 to find the reasons why. You know, but that's a bridge too far. It's just that's like trying to explain to people the context of their conspiracy theories. It's it's too much thinking. It's too much information. They need a they need a simple scapegoat. They need someone to blame and someone to go after. And once they do that, their sins are forgiven and the country goes back to the way it was. Right. Whatever that was. I don't want to go back to the way the country was in the 1950s. I remember it all too well, but they want to go back there. And that's what scares me. Mm, Yeah. Do you think in general, I mean, not on the state level, but on the level of the individual, that practicing occultism can, not necessarily, but can lead somebody who does it in a certain way, which is probably not the way that you and I would like to do it, um, can lead you to, to those bad habits let's put it that way i mean we see occult groups um, active occult groups who have had and have problems of behavior of their of their uh, members we see occult groups who attract psychologically instable people into there and do not do enough to protect themselves from them coming inside. Is this an inherent problem to occultism in general, to spirituality, maybe even in general? Or how would you how would you analyze that? I think it's a problem in occult groups in particular, because when you get a bunch of people together in one room and you say we have information and insight that the common person does not have, that we are special, that gives you suddenly carte blanche to do things that would be unthinkable otherwise. Mm -hmm. It it gives you this ability to say, okay, we're going to do this for the good of these other people who are just too stupid, who don't understand things the way we do. You have that set up. I mean, I've had many friends over the years uh, since the 1960s, 1970s, who I thought we were all on the same page where spirituality was concerned. The requirement to work on yourself. I mean, that's really where it all starts. Sure. But once once there's a group, then the group decides who is more advanced than someone else. And why are they? And what secrets do does the higher rank has that the lower rank does not have, that the higher degrees have that the lower degrees don't have? And then there there comes this motion, this this intention to guard the secrets of the higher degrees from the lower degrees. And you set up this exact same political problem that you have in every political situation ever. Mm. I've had friends who I thought were, as I say, on the same page. Uh, One in particular, uh, Marco and I have discussed this at length in in the past because Mm. we both knew this person. uh, And I knew him probably a lot better. I, I knew him since the 70s. And uh, he's, he's passed now. He's, he's died. He's, his name was Jim. Uh, he belonged to the OTO, to a Crowley organization. And back in the 70s, this was like the place to be because this was free thinking. This was out of the box. This yeah. was uh, breaking down all of the, you know, all the standards. This was, you know, uh, going for the new age, right? Creating right. a new age. 
which was going to be political. New Aeon in that case, exactly. New Aeon, yeah. And I thought, well, we're all on the same page, right? Turns out we weren't, right? And there was this focus on taking the this Crowley organization, the OTO, the Ordo Templi Orientis, and turning it into this social construction that was going to be basically the Catholic Church, you know, um, but with hippies running it, I guess. And these were not hippies. Their, their emotional construction was very authoritarian. And Jim became extremely authoritarian. And the whole uh, OTO in New York City and then spreading out to the United States was becoming more and more authoritarian. No one had gone through the degrees yet. This is very important to, to point out, I think. Brady McMurtry, who was the, the caliph, who was the guy who was assigned by Crowley, they say, to reconstitute the OTO, had been in the military. Uh, he had taught political science, I think, at um, George Washington University. I haven't been able to find the records, but that's what they say. He was involved with all of this. He was a very, you know, but he was kind of a hippie kind of guy. But he wanted to create this, this system that was going to be the OTO for the New Age, and it was going to be very authoritarian. But he died before he could initiate everyone through all the degrees. So they were given provisional degrees, basically battlefield. Um, um, <laughs> what, what do you call the term? Uh, I don't know, military lodge things. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, in other words, yeah. giving them the, uh, in other words, making you a captain or a major or a general on the right. battlefield. battlefield yeah. I don't know what you'd call it. Yes, but I, I know. The word I think we all know what you mean. Yes. Promotion. Anyway, battlefield promotion. Yeah. Let's say. Right. So they all had provisional ninth. Ninth degree is like the the ultimate degree. Right. It's not the end, but it's pretty much the ultimate degree in the OTO. No one had gone through fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth degree to get to ninth. They were given them provisionally because he was dying. He needed people to carry on the OTO. So suddenly you had a whole bunch of people who didn't really go through the degree system, but they had the degrees on paper. Mm-hmm. And now they were stopping everybody else from getting degrees. You know, <laughs> So this authoritarian mindset started to work. And I, I, at that point, I said, guys, I can't hang out with you anymore. I never joined the OTO. Mm-hmm. But I said, I can't, I, this, what, what you're doing doesn't make sense. You want to take the copyrights of Crowley and guard them and not let anybody have them and, and try to fight anybody who's, I said, how are you promoting Thelema if you're stopping people from reproducing Crowley's works? He's been dead for a long time. Some of these works go back to you know the early 20th century. They're in public domain. No, we're going to stop it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And, no one's going to have rights to the copyrights. I thought this is all wrong. Right. This is not what I, what I signed up for. Let's fast forward 20 or more years, really almost 40 years. I sit down with Jim again. We find each other after many years and so much politics and so many things have happened in the, in the United States and the world. And he's talking to me. And he, he had joined the Tea Party, which in the United States was the anti-democratic, mm-hmm. very right-wing movement. Right despised President Obama, despised all of that. All it was He was the enemy. He was all of this. Wasserman, college-educated person, Jewish background, mm. had married a woman of color, had a child of a woman of color, is now telling me that Obama was born in Africa, that he was not born in Hawaii, he was not an American citizen. He's telling me that George Soros was a Nazi, had been in the Nazis during World War II. I mean, a, a raft of these things. And I'm thinking, oh my God, where does this come from? 
you're an educated person. You're one of the high ranking members of the OTO, right? And he's posting things about Donald Trump and he's supporting Donald Trump. I'm using this not to attack Jim's character. I'm using it to, as, a, as, a, as an example of what happened, where you had an entire subculture within Thalema, within Aleister Crowley's OTO, mm. that was now so radically right-wing, it was not possible, it was not funny. I said, George Soros could not have been a Nazi. He was a kid during World War II. He was given to a Christian family to hide him because he was Jewish and was going to be killed. And how can you call him a Nazi? I said, I've known so many people, uh, displaced persons from the war who had gone through the same thing. A, a dear friend of mine had been both Jung pioneer in the Soviet Union and Hitler youth because they were a displaced person. They were constantly being yeah. pushed. I said, you can't call these people. You can't call them Nazis or communists. I said, get a grip. And no, Obama was not born in Africa. Come on. You know, we have the, the, the birth announcements from the Hawaiian newspapers. Yeah. Was this a conspiracy that went back that far? <laughs> okay, I understand you're an occultist, you believe in these things, but come on, let's get serious about this, right? <laughs> let's get a little realistic. Our method is science. Remember that in our ancient yeah. religion? Yeah. But no, he was 100%, you know, this mm -hmm. way. He, and to the end of his days, mm -hmm. he would not surrender this at all. Right. So, and this was a leader. And there were many, many like him that followed him that, that still revered the memory of this person and his politics. It, this idea that if you are a member of an elite organization, and in this case, an elite occult organization, you know better than everyone else. You have access to secrets no one else has. You see the truth. You know what the truth actually is, and the others don't. And this has been the, the problem with occultism since the beginning, right? right? The idea that you have to work on yourself, you have to find the truth within, you have to treat people fairly, treat them decently, you know, not go overboard on these things. It, it, it just wasn't there. You know, we've lost that concept. He toyed with joining Freemasonry. He never became a Freemason. He got very close to joining and at some point decided not to. And I could see why he would not have wanted to. Maybe for the same reason I didn't want to join the OTO, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't going to join the Freemasons because he would start at the beginning and he would have to go through this process. Right. self-examination. And he thought he already had that nailed. He already had it done. Right. Yeah. Why go through that again? So um, I don't know if that answered your question, but it's just my personal experience of, of living with that, confronting it, of seeing this. There are no left wing, you know, anti um, uh, uh conservative occult groups that I can find really that, that are not, you know, sort of hodgepodge and hell, you know, pell-mell, pell-mell uh, pell sort of uh, groups of people that are sort of um, not really groups. They come together, they fall apart. They come together, they fall apart. Yeah. The ones that are really rigid and structured, they tend to be sort of more right wing. And that might be a psychological condition. It might be some trait that Adorno was talking about when he created the fascism scale after World War II. And he said, occultism leads naturally mm -hmm. to fascism. Uh, it, it might be, you know, they might be verifying that Adorno's uh, philosophy. I don't know. I don't, I think that if we have a new aeon, and if there really is a new age, that this new age is not going to be that. That's old age. That's as old age as we can make it, right? That's right. just, uh, that's just a, a photocopy of everything that's gone on before. I think a new age is going to be something completely different 
if there is truly a new age and if Crowley wasn't just smoking dope at the time. But, you know, <laughs> well, which Crowley, he probably was, but still. He which he probably was. <laughs> <laughs> but um, correct me if you see that differently, but uh, in a way, uh, I try to put it in a way that to express what I think, is, which is not easy in that case. Um, in a way, the hermeticism, I keep saying that, is always trying to neutralize the binary, right? That's one of the, yes. the one, it's one of the main aims. And in a way, somebody who is an occultist trying to develop oneself's relation between spirit, spirit and matter and, and all of that, um, cannot be right wing or left wing. He cannot possibly be either. He can only integrate the whole thinking behind that. Um, of course, that's a, a high, high aim. And in day to day work, you're probably never going to achieve that. But would you in principle agree on that? I in principle agree on it 100%. I think that in the world, effectively, it's up to some of us to be a bit more left-wing to counterbalance the right-wing tendencies of our mm -hmm. brethren. Mm -hmm. Our brothers and sisters are going right-wing because they think it's correct. It's the right mm -hmm. way to go. And if you're too blatantly left-wing, well, then they ignore you. Mm. So, And they ignore what you're trying to tell them. And I think that you have to somehow act as a kind of corrective a little bit without right. being obnoxious about it because people do get obnoxious about these things yeah and it's it's not it's not kind it's not it's not the the essence of what it, we're all supposed to be about it's it's um you're, you're creating enemies you're creating fights this is not what we're supposed to be doing we're supposed to be acting as uh, examples Correct. as to how this could happen and we're never going to be perfect examples that's not going to happen um but we're we can act as a corrective Uh, to what what is going on to a certain extent we can say did you ever think about this or did you ever think that what you're saying what you're doing is actually counterproductive to to your spiritual goal right and you've, you've got to sometimes do that um but i think that living as an example is more important probably than anything else if you live the truth this way uh people will notice it and um they will want to know why you're not like them you know uh jim always wondered what was wrong with me that I wasn't more like him, that I didn't see the light. And at the same point, he felt drawn to keep talking to me. We kept having these very long conversations about it. Uh, he didn't just sit there and say, okay, go away. You know, you're, 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 a, you're a, a leftist or a communist or a socialist, whatever, whatever the buzzword was at the time. And I'm none of those things. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that are easily identifiable that way. I don't consider myself a member of any of these groups. I, I am right. an independent politically, yeah. but he would look at me that way. Like, you know, I was representing the, the other side mm -hmm. and I would sit down and talk with him and he would realize we had more in common than he realized. It was just that he got off on the deep end in certain areas. I mean, he had contacted me because of sinister forces, right? Right. He thought right. that I was now coming along to his way of thinking because I was writing about conspiracy theories. And I said, Jim, I write about conspiracy theories. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not one of these guys who thinks that Obama was born in Africa and that he's right. a secret Muslim or something. I said, this is, not, this is not what this is about. I'm writing about the technology behind the conspiracy theory. Exactly. How do exactly. these things happen, right? Yeah. yeah. We have to look there. And there is an occult aspect to all of this, which I went at pains to try to describe in Sinister Forces. Yeah. It's not a deep state the way you're thinking it, Jim. It's not a bunch of guys in a back room. 
with cigars plotting world domination. Have you seen human beings in back rooms with cigars? These guys couldn't, no, they couldn't run a bake sale, okay? These guys will not do it. This is not happening the way you think it is. It's happening not the way you think it is. And the people that you want to blame today, you're going to hail as heroes tomorrow. I said, be careful. You have to see this for what it really is, for what the what the process is really taking place. And, it's and I think at that enough, point, it's dangerous enough like that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but no, no, but that, that's yeah. that's it. That's how I would sum it up. Yeah. 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 Would you dare um, defining the role of occultism, esotericism, maybe even spirituality? Today, what should be, could be its role for today and the near future? I think that there is a possibility that Crowley was correct in the Book of the Law. And I think that the Book of the Law is misunderstood, especially by his followers. And that's an arrogant thing for me to say, I know. But I've been through this for the last... 50 plus years. So I have a kind of, a, of, a, of an angle on this. Book three, it's ch- the third chapter of the book of the law is the one that's the most controversial and the ones all the right wing people embrace. And they don't understand it, I think. I think that the third chapter of the book of the law is, and I've said it before to people, they don't know what I'm talking about. I say it's a cri de coeur of the oppressed people in the world who've had to deal with Christianity and Islam and other religions being shoved down their throats by Europeans. I said, look at the book of the law politically, instead of looking at it as, you know, oh, you know, Jesus and Mary and all the the obscene things that are said about uh, religious leaders in chapter three. Stop for a second and look at it from a different point of view. What if book three, what if chapter three of the book of the law, rather, was written in Haiti, as an example, written in, in Nigeria, was composed in South America, was composed in Southeast Asia, wouldn't it suddenly make a lot of sense what book three is saying, what chapter three is saying of the book of the law? It's a, it's a resistance against a mindset, and Crowley could not see it because he had that mindset. Mm-hmm. He had the mindset of the British giving the light to the to the, the poor benighted souls in, in the British Empire. It was part Where of his time, he, yeah. yeah sure. part of his yeah. time. I mean, he, he traveled extensively, but in the areas controlled by the Brits, right? Yeah. So he was in India, he was in he was in Egypt, he was in areas where the British had, had tremendous control. He said he was safe, he was privileged, he was wealthy, all of these things. And he put the book of the law away. It scared him because of chapter three. In the very first chapter, it says, the Obia and the Wanga let him learn and teach. He never did. Obia and Wanga are direct references to Afro-Caribbean religion. Sure. It's the one blind spot he had. It's the one thing he never really examined. He never taught it. He never understood it. He never went to a, a Haitian ceremony, uh, a Voudon or anything like that. Nothing. It's never in his writings. I can't find it anywhere. Mm-hmm. So that plus chapter three together, taken together, shows you the weakness of Crowley's own position and the weakness of the order, of the OTO and the other orders that have spun out from that. It is a political system. It's baked in. It's just not understood. The third uh, aeon, the aeon of Horus or whatever they want to call it, if it actually is going to take place, is going to be one in which the European systems are going to get very shaky and the the, the systems from the rest of the world, the southern hemisphere systems basically, are going to suddenly become more predominant. 
And that's necessary for spiritual awakening worldwide, globally. We need it. We've, we've oppressed it. We've hidden it from ourselves. We've kept it quiet. We are afraid to look at it, to confront it face to face. But we can, you know. Uh, the writings that we have on alchemy, which are the, my most prized to me, alchemy is to me the golden road. It's the it, right. it is it is where it all is. We can take that and look at Asian religion, African religion, South American religion, Afro-Caribbean, and understand it better. We can understand both better, and we're just not doing it because we're afraid to do it. We think that it's mm. you know it's Middle Eastern kinda, and it's Greco-Roman, and it's you know it's Platonic and Neoplatonic, and we keep it in that little box. But alchemy came from India, it came from China, it came from these other places, right? And there's a heavy African component as well, and we've got to we've got to understand that if we want to grow spiritually. The whole planet has to be embraced and the political situation has to be understood. We have to confront it and we have to conf we have to understand their religions. And that sounds like I'm Bernie Sanders talking or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but that's not my intention. What I'm trying to do is say this is our method is science and the aim is religion. And this is the scientific method that we have to use to understand our religion. Um, that makes me think of, we all know that the Kibalion is a reduction, but uh, in my view, not the unclever reduction of, of what the Corpus Medicum says. Mm -hmm. um, and it says there in, I think it's uh, the sixth principle, chance is but the name for a law not recognized. And there are no, there is no escape to the law. I think that uh, approximately that's, that's what it says, right? Mm -hmm. but of course, core is chances by the name of a law not recognized. Is that, can that even be extended to what you just were saying that maybe we have not yet recognized a law which is much more global, much more unifying than we, we Westerners think? <laughs> I hate to support a quotation from the Kabbalion, but you put me <laughs> in that position. Say it in words. No, but actually, seriously, over you. Uh, yes. Yes and no. I think we know the law. I think the law exists, and we already know that, but we're afraid to apply it. I think we don't want to apply it where it should be applied. I think we're, we're, we're trying to protect ourselves. You know, yes, the recognition of a law that's, that's not applied, it, the law is there. It's in front of us all the time. You know, I can't, I've traveled to those parts of the world. I've, I've, I've been to the Caribbean. I've been to Haiti. I've been to, to all over South America. You know, there is, there is an experience there which is, which to somebody in a Victorian drawing room of the Golden Dawn would find alien because of their culture and because of their language and their upbringing. Mm -hmm. But if they actually went there and spent five, six months in situ in that area, they would realize that there was a commonality of experience yeah. that they could rely upon, just a different approach to it and different tools, different parts of the brain that are being opened, different parts of consciousness that are being stimulated, perhaps, but it's still part of the same process. And we're ignoring it at our peril. And I've said that not only about occultism, I've said it about our approach to the UFO phenomenon as well. Yeah, I've been very vocal in saying we have got to stop using only the scientists and the engineers to try to understand this phenomenon. We need everybody to understand it. We need the artists. We need the writers, the musicians. We need people in the humanities to understand the UFO phenomenon. And more than anything else, we need to talk to colonized peoples 
about the phenomenon because those colonized peoples are now where we may be in the future if we're not careful. What if the UFO phenomenon is a colonization process that's taking place? Who better to understand what our options are than people that we have colonized, right? Mm -hmm. We have to understand them. We have to talk to these people. We have to bring them on board if they're willing to. And to say, we're all in the same boat together now. We're all on the same planet. And there may be a colonization process, or if not colonization, the confrontation with the other, with the cultural other. How do you handle that and still maintain your integrity? the integrity of your culture, your religion, your history. How do you manage that? Or can you? Are we are we in dire straits because if there is disclosure of the UFO phenomenon in the near future, how are we going to handle that? Will that destroy our institutions? Can we protect our institutions? Um, there was a meeting of rabbis at Dharamsala with the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama called the meeting together. This is written about, I think, in... Uh, I forget the name of the book. Um, Anyway, I'll find it. I'll I'll send it to you. He asked the rabbis, how did you maintain your culture in diaspora? How did you maintain your language, your religion, and your culture? We need to know that as Tibetans because we're we're in India now. (laughs) You know, we've been kicked out. How do we do this? How can the Tibetans maintain their, their, their culture and their religion in diaspora? That understanding is what we now need on a government level, on a, on a, on a, social level. We have to understand from the people that we've colonized, from the people that we've kicked around, basically, we need to know how they survived. We need to know what 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 was lost, what was gained, what was protected, what was preserved. We need to know what strategies you use to defend yourself. And they may not want to tell us this. They may not want to talk to us. I can understand that 100%. But even in the United States alone, between uh, white people and people of color, we need this conversation because it's it's a national security conversation and it's an international security conversation. So for occultism in the UFO phenomenon, which to me are linked uh, inextricably on one yeah. level, we need, we need to apply these same lessons. That's and I'm not running for any presidential office, so don't worry. But <laughs> this is my position. Anyway. You know, I, I, I see what you mean. And we will also in the show notes of this episode, we will also give the necessary links to that. Um, so please go there and uh, have a look at it. I have a final question for you, because unfortunately, Peter, we are already coming to the ends of the, uh, the time we have. But um, having said all that, I talked about groups OTO and others and and about um, global the global aspect of, of occultism and the UFO phenomenon um, what would be your advice for a person for a searcher so to speak should he or she rather go as an individual uh, as a, as a solo worker so to speak in in occultism I mean or should they rather look for a group that fits them. Even sometimes they have to quit again and look for another one. Is the egregore so necessary or can the individual achieve the same? It depends on the, the, the emotional and psychological makeup of that individual. There are people who need social reinforcement. Uh, to at least to start the quest, to start the, the the trip. They need people around them who they feel have been to where they are and can help them along. 
I submit that there is probably no group that's going to do the, the job for you long term. You are eventually going to find that you have emotional difficulties with other people. There's there's internal politics. Um, there are going to be things that you're not going to like. People are going to tell you to do things you don't want to do. Um, you need a certain degree of emotional strength to go through that. Israel Rigardi, who was a famous member of the Golden Dawn and a, and a secretary to Aleister Crowley, mm-hmm. used to recommend going through a period of psychotherapy before you begin right. this kind of quest. Um, just so that you understand what your weaknesses and strengths are and you know what to expect. Because when you get involved with the group, they're going to start pressing your buttons one way or the other, you know, and you're going to ask yourself, should I just stay in? Is this a trial that I have to go through? Like the Masonic trials, am I supposed just to go through this? Correct. Probably not, but you're going to have to know yourself. You're going to have to be able to answer that question for yourself and probably going through a little bit of a psychoanalysis ahead of time might be exactly what you need or something of that nature and realize that the work is going to be up to you. It's not going to be up to somebody else to do it for yeah. you. They're not going to do it. They can initiation means starting you It's turning the key in the ignition. You've got to drive the car after that. You've got to understand how to do that. So don't think that a group is going to solve your problems because it won't. I think that's really the crucial point. You have to do the work, as we said earlier. And that's if you always look for the other to do the work instead of yourself. Um, not in any situation of life and uh, especially no. not in occultism, you're going you're gonna to go anywhere. Right. I agree. Right. Precisely. Thank you, Peter. This was an extraordinarily interesting talk. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed that. And I'm My sure pleasure. the audience did as well. And uh, thank you for your time. And well, maybe we meet again here on the Thoughts and Memories podcast. Thank you. Why not?
Shingetsu from the recording called Bamboo by Carl Jung. And before the second part of the interview, we listened to Ghosts, which already sounded, even though it was from that other recording, Lost in the Wood, sounded very Japanese and was also played on the Japanese bamboo flute. So I hope you enjoyed that. And I hope certainly that you enjoyed also the interview. Many, many things to think about, to discuss and to go further in your reading and thinking. And I can only invite you to, as occultists that we all are, to think about those things, to make your opinions about it, your own opinions. As Peter Lavender said early in the interview, it's not about just getting an argument here and an argument there and then repeat that. No, do make your own own thinking. I'm sorry to say that, but it seems necessary in the times we live in. And I know that most of you here who listen they are absolutely aware of that. But sometimes, even to me, it's good to repeat that and to keep it in mind because you can easily get lost in those strange and difficult times that we go through at the moment. Right. So thanks for listening. Thanks for being with us here today on this episode number 11 of season 10 with Peter Levenda. Thanks to Peter Levenda himself for being with us here today and giving us his time and insight. And I hope you all enjoyed what happened here today. And you come back next week, of course. Yes, next week, again, another show and a bit more classical maybe this time. We will have Brian Cotnoir as my guest. Brian Cotnoir, great alchemist who writes also a lot about alchemy and is also a musician. And we will speak about alchemy, of course, but also the alchemical usage of music. Well, I don't give away more at the moment, but I'm sure you're going to like what you hear. And you will enjoy also next week's episode, which will already be number 12. We will be half through the 24 episodes of the season. Um, 24 is always the aim, you know, of a season length. So we are on a good path there. And I'm confident that this time the 24 episodes will be done. Okay, so, well, I hope... You will be back and have a good week in between and that you will take care, stay tuned and that we hear you soon. <laughs>